one-week season. going on OWS fam welcome to the week 15 edition of the OWS angles podcast I am your host I am your guest I am JM to win as always throw this baby on 1.5x speed or 2x speed even if you're watching this on YouTube or on X slash Twitter and let's get started with a really fun week where we have a really fun and interesting and unique setup, which is obviously what we will be talking about in today's podcast. For those of you who are watching or listening to this for the first time, the concept behind this show is that DFS is not a game of picking players. DFS is a strategy game. DFS is a game of outmaneuvering our opponents toward a first place finish. How do we do that? Well, there are a lot of ways that we do that, but the first steps, the most important steps each week are recognizing that every week presents us with its own unique puzzle. And we have to figure out how to put together that week's puzzle in order to outmaneuver the field toward a first place finish. So every week is going to present us with different paths and different angles that we can lean into in order to maximize our chances of a first place finish on that particular week. Why first place finishes? Because that's where most of the money is. DFS is not about trying to get those profitable weeks as often as possible because those profitable weeks are a trap. Those profitable weeks where you're just saying, man, if I can just finish in the money in tournaments, well, you're only going, mathematically, you're only going to do that 20% of the time. If you are playing incorrectly, you might do that a little bit more often than 20% of the time, but never really have a shot at those top 1% or top 0.1% finishes, which is where most of the money is. So it will feel good those weeks where you finish in the money in the top 20%, the top 15%, but you are slowly bleeding out money over time if that's all that you are doing. Now, it's totally fine if you are targeting first place and you finish in the money, uh, kind of makes up for not hitting on that particular week. But again, what we are building toward in DFS is those asymmetric payouts, those first place finishes. So important every week to understand what the picture on the puzzle box looks like and what we can do on that particular week to maximize our chances of a first place finish. So if you are an OWS member, as always, my complete player pool can be found in the scroll. If you are watching this a little bit early, uh, might not be up quite yet, but uh, should be up around 7.30 p.m. Eastern on Friday in the scroll. Uh, you'll be able to find my complete player pool and my Sunday morning update as well. But let's talk the macro of what this week's slate provides and get a sense of how we might want to attack this particular slate. So really interesting week. Uh, the way that this slate sets up, a couple of things that really stand out on this week that make it very unique compared to other weeks. So not super unique in that we have a lot of low total games. We've gotten used to that. We know that there is a cat and mouse game between offenses and defenses, and we are in an era of defenses catching up to the offenses. So even though all the rules in the NFL are designed to help the offense and essentially elevate scoring, and even though offenses have progressed so much over the last decade, decade and a half, defenses have started figuring out ways to stop what offenses have gotten so good at, uh, and that has led to scoring being down across the board. So we, in the past, 
if we enter the slate, you know, most people look at over-unders to kind of get a, an initial feel for what a slate provides. In the past, if we would have come into a week, we would have seen maybe five, six, seven games with over-unders between like 43 and 46 points. Let's say 10 games. Late, okay. We might have five games with an over-under between 43 and 46 points. We might have another game at 46 and a half, another game at 47. And then we might have two games at 48 and above. Uh, and then we might have one game kind of at like 41 and then one game below 40. Typically you wouldn't have more than one game on a slate below 40. And in the past, we would kind of be looking at the games of 47 and a half, 47 or higher and saying, okay, these are the games that really stand out. And there might be a 52 point over under in there. There might be a 50 and a half point over under. And we might be looking at the 48 and a half point over under and saying, man, everyone's kind of ignoring this one because they're looking at these top two games, but 48 and a half point over under isn't that far off from these other games. And, and as we always talk about on OWS, the over under is just the median outcome. And that doesn't really matter for us in DFS. What we're targeting is the high end. So all those high over unders tell us is this has a better chance of being a shootout, but we can kind of dig into the numbers and we might look at that 40, eight and a half point total and say, oh man, this game actually has a better shootout probability than the 52 point total. Or if it shoots out, it has a higher total ceiling, like a top ceiling is higher than these other games over here. Uh, and then we would have these games in the middle ground, the 43 to 46 point games. And we would be saying, yeah, I mean, maybe we get some good scores that emerge from here. It's probably unlikely that we get a shootout, but let's examine each of these games because there are these barbell distributions where, yeah, 44 points is the median outcome for this game, but maybe it could be a 65-point combined game because of the way that these two teams match up, the way this game might develop. And so we'd be kind of mining those games to see, are there any hidden shootouts in here? And are there any individual one-off pieces that we could really like from here? And then that game that we mentioned earlier that's below 40-point total, it just probably wouldn't be on our list. And we would be looking at it and we would be saying, yeah, you know, there's there's a chance that you could get a good DFS score from this game, but why there's nine other games on the slate. Why dig into this game with such a low total? So why do totals matter? Totals matter because, well, again, they give us an indication of how likely a shootout is, but also our upside in DFS, not just our raw scores, but our upside tends to come from touchdowns. It's very rare that you see one of these blow up tournament winning types of scores and the guy scores zero touchdowns, let alone even one touchdown. Typically you need two touchdowns from these guys. And if a if an individual player touchdowns are unpredictable from individual players. So if an individual player is going to have an elevated chance of scoring multiple touchdowns, it's probably going to be on a team that has an elevated chance of scoring a lot of touchdowns team scores four or five touchdowns, there's a greater chance of a player on that team scoring two of those touchdowns than if a team scores two touchdowns and you're trying to get a two touchdown game from that guy. So we would typically just be taking this low total game and saying, yeah, you might be able to find a solid score from this low total game, but why go there at all, right? Let's just cross that game off the list, simplify things, treat it as a nine game slate. Okay. So that's the past. <laughs> what does this week provide us with? This week gives us three games with totals of 48 and above three games that even in the past, even before scoring was down so much, we would have been like, Oh, these are really nice games. These are games that we want to go out of our way to consider, to think about, to play around with how these could play to the upside and how they could turn into a shootout and how we might be able to take advantage of them. And even if they don't turn into a shootout, are there any one-off plays that we really want to be pulling from these games? And this is where we're looking for our likeliest paths to a high DFS score. 
So we have three of those games on this week's slate. It's been a while since we've had three games with, the, with totals of 48 and above on a slate in 2023. But this week also gives us six games with totals of 38 and below. Six games that in the past would have been in this category of like, oh, we're just cutting this off our list. So what's really interesting here is that we've had a lot of weeks this season with a large bucket of games under 40 point totals. But then the good games are still kind of like maybe there's one game at 49, but you can poke holes in it. And then the other games are kind of 44, 45, 46 point totals. This week, it's like we have this bucket of games that in the past we would have just let go of. And then we have three games that are in the bucket that even in the past, when scoring was up, we would have been like, oh, these are these are the games to pay attention to. Uh, in the middle there, still a really low total. Last time I looked, it was 42 and a half is Buccaneers at Packers. So that's in that's in a different category than either of those. But we've got six games down on this very low end, three games on this high end, then that one game kind of on the, the lower end of the middle. So that's a very unique setup on a week like this. Now, obviously, the high total games, there's a lot to dig into in those games in terms of just because they're high totals doesn't mean they're going to hit. Just because they're high totals doesn't mean that that's your path to a first place finish. A good example of this is the Cowboys and Bills game, where if it plays to its median projection, if it plays like a 26 to 24 game, which is what these teams are implied for right now, if it plays to a 25 to 27 game, somewhere in that range, well, at the price tags attached to these players, you're not necessarily getting tournament winners out of that type of game environment. So just because that game ends up combining for 50 points doesn't necessarily mean that you had to be playing players from that game in order to be competitive on this particular week. What that game does tell you, that game total and that setup does tell you is, well, there's a chance that this game plays out in such a way that there's 65 combined points, 70 combined points. And then there will be players from this game that justify their price tags. There will be players from this game that are maybe even required to compete for a tournament win on this particular week. So just because we have these high total games and these low total games doesn't mean that that's clearly the way to play things. It's just, hey, load up on the high total games, ignore the low total games, because there's a lot of nuance in there. And there are going to be some one up because there's only 10 games on the slate and Six of them fall into this really bad game bucket, and really seven of them fall into the bucket of games we would have ignored in the past. And in the high total games, if they don't all sh- if they don't shoot out, if they kind of just hit their median projection or even fall below their median projection, and you've got the high price tags on these players, there's a chance that pulling multiple one-off pieces from these lower total games ends up being the way to go. So uh, that's not to say that we're necessarily just clearest path of how we build is already set forth for us, but it gives us a lot of interesting things to think about in terms of how broad the delta is between these types of games and these types of games. On top of that, and when what really gives this slate its unique shape is the fact that all seven of these low total games are being played early and all three of these high total games are being played late. So one of the things that we've talked about and we've we had a couple winner circle lessons about this. So if you're not an inner circle member, Inner Circle is our, I mean, it's our full DFS subscription, but then it also has a lot of training components added onto it. So it's just like a little bit more, it costs a little bit more than our straight DFS subscription. But then you also get my weekly, like Wednesday training podcast, where we talk macro DFS strategy and theory through the lens of the slate behind or the slate ahead. Uh, You get the slate podcast on Saturdays, where Xandamir and Hilo break down the entire slate, but they do it not, they go position by position, but not just talking about who the good plays are, but talking about the strategies 
around each position and around the slate. Uh, there's some extra stuff in the in the scroll each week, including the Oracle, where we answer some of the key strategy questions on that week's slate. So the in in Winter Circle, we've had a couple lessons in my Winter Circle podcast uh, over the last couple of years where we've used examples of two, and this is important, okay? So if you kind of tuned out during all that, tune back in, uh, where you've used examples of two and three game DFS slates. So slates that only had two or three games on them, where the winning scores in DraftKings tournaments were over 200 points. Why is that important? Well, on the main slate, typically a winning score is going to be over 200 points. You need to be scoring over 200 points in order to win a tournament most weekends. On weekends like this, weekends like last week, weekends like the weekend before where the slate's pretty thin, there's not going to be a bunch of guys scoring high high fantasy scores. You know, there's not going to be that many people who score over 200 points. There's going to be a handful of rosters in any tournament that scores over 200 points and you need to be in that mix to be competing for first place. And maybe first place is 220, but maybe second place is 214 and third place is 212 and and seventh place is all the way down at 203, right? There's just not going to be that many rosters that, that score 200 points on a weekend like this. A smaller percentage than normal will score 200 plus points. So when we talk about, hey, there are two and three game slates where you can score over 200 points. In fact, the example, one of the examples I've used when we, we did like a whole lesson on this was I had a game changer win in the on the Thanksgiving slate in 2020. And that 2020 Thanksgiving slate, typically three game slate on Thanksgiving, the, the night game was canceled because of COVID. So it was a two game slate. And if I remember correctly, my score to win the game changer was 240 points, might've been like 220 points, but that's just from a two game slate. So why is that important? Well, when we get to the main slate, when, when there's only two games on a slate, only three games on a slate, we have to pull from those two or three games, right? And sometimes the winning score is going to be 170 or 175, 180, 160, but other times it's going to be over 200 points because that's just enough scoring in those two games, those three games to produce 200 plus point scores. But then when we get to the main slate, it's very rare for people to be like, oh, well, you know what? I can just build around two games. I can just build around three games and leave the rest of the games alone. And there's this tendency to want to spread out our exposure to all these different games. And yeah, I'm going to stack this game, right? I've got a quarterback and a wide receiver and a bring back. I've got three pieces from this game. And then I'll take another piece from this game over here and another piece from this game over here, another piece from this game over here, another piece from this game over here. And instead of just betting on there being a couple teams that put up a bunch of points or a couple game environments that really go off, we end up just like trying to mix and match individual pieces, which is mathematically far more difficult to do anyway. So it becomes very interesting on a week like this to recognize that tournament winning scores, even on a 10 game slate, can come from building around just two or three games. And then we have these two or three games that, but it, that in terms of over-unders are head and shoulders above the uh the other games available on this site. So that's something that I want to think about. I want you to think about as you build your rosters this week, something that I'm going to be thinking about as I build my rosters this week. And keep in mind also that with all these games being played late, there is a viable path to rostering a defense in the early window or rostering a defense in one other player in the early window. And then just kind of, you have your roster set, right? But it's kind of like a placeholder roster and you can wait until deeper into the early games to have a sense of what's going on in all these other games on the slate, what's going on in the tournaments, what high-owned players are hitting, what high-owned players are missing, and what do you want to do with your late roster as a result of that? So almost like 
put a pin in your building and just say, you know what, I'm going to wait until Sunday afternoon to build my roster. I'm going to gather some information. I'm going to have more information in the field. I'm going to know how far behind I am or how far ahead of the field I am in terms of, you know, maybe all the popular players from the early, early window. It's viable that every popular player from the early window fails to go 4X their salary. Well, if that ends up being the case, you can play things pretty safe and straightforward on the late slate and be way ahead of the field. So that's another thing to be thinking about on this slate is not just the, the broad delta between these seven games and these three games, but also the structure of the schedule of this slate to where you can build around these three games uh, and wait to have as much information as possible before doing those builds. Uh, almost like a Thanksgiving slate in that regard, where the Thanksgiving slate, that you have the three games and they're staggered throughout the day, uh, large, large prize pools on those. And so you can kind of get information from each set of games and know how to adjust your rosters. Uh, so very unique setup in that regard. Uh, all right. So that's how the game, that's how the slate sets up from a macro perspective. Uh, the next thing that I want to talk about is how this game sets up from an ownership perspective. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and take a look at ownership. And this is First off, we should note this is Friday ownership. So there's a lot of room for this to change. In fact, there's a lot of injury news that we're still kind of waiting on and, and that hasn't necessarily been reflected even in, in these most recent ownership numbers that were run on Friday morning because news comes out throughout the day on Friday. And then there's going to be places, a lot of these are going to hold and there's going to be places where there are dramatic shifts in ownership. Uh, before we get to that, uh, I want to remind you, I said, what, four weeks ago, five weeks ago, when Props Profit was sitting at... Was it $10,000? I think it was sitting at $10,000. And I said, you know, hey, it's been sitting here at $10,000 for a few weeks. And people don't tend to react to these things until the numbers start going up and that FOMO kicks in. And I said, it might bounce around here between nine and $10,000 in props profit for a few weeks. And then all of a sudden, you're going to see it jump to $12,000. And then we highlighted that on the Angles podcast when it had jumped to $12,000. Uh, we have not, I don't think we've highlighted it when it jumped up to 14 and then jumped up to 15 and jumped up to 16. Actually, I haven't even updated these numbers. It's actually at 16,455 in profit now. Uh, we still have six and a half months of NBA season left. We still have uh, the rest of the NFL season plus playoffs. We still have the rest of college basketball going. You don't have to follow these sports. You literally just get these bets, these plus EV bets dropped into your lap and all you have to do is go bet them. So uh, sign up for Props Insider over here if you are interested. With that, let's go ahead and take a look at ownership projections. Okay, so interesting structure on this slate from an ownership standpoint. Now, these this is these are my opinions on these plays, or these are my reads on these plays, is how I'll put this. Uh, but interesting perspective in the way that ownership sets up. So we've talked about the macro structure of the slate, but what I want to show you here is the quarterback and running back ownership looks pretty sharp. And so again, that doesn't mean that this is exactly how things are going to play out, but just in terms of like when I ran through and started building my player pool and started prepping the player grid. And then I went and looked at ownership this morning. It was like, oh, this, this quarterback kind of lines up pretty closely with what I'm looking at this week. Kind of disappointing, right? Because you always like to find those spots where you're like, oh, I'm high on this guy and nobody's on this guy. Uh, so quarterback, we got Matthew Stafford. Well, Matthew Stafford, the the we know how bad the Washington pass defense is. Uh, interesting on the Rams passing offense and worth noting, uh, you know, tape grinders have been talking all season about this has probably been the best 
season of Matthew Stafford's career. This is as well as he has ever played. And uh, like PFF guys, or like it was maybe six, seven weeks ago, they were saying they looked at Stafford's stats for the first time and they were shocked that he had, I think it was at that point, nine touchdown passes and eight interceptions because they were saying, you know, we don't typically look at traditional statistics because we're watching the film, we're grading the plays. And it was surprising to see that his traditional statistics looked so bad because he was playing so well. So one of the things that I have been paying attention to throughout this season is, man, there's going to come a point with, with how well Stafford is playing. There's going to come a point where positive regression hits for him and the touchdowns start falling into place. And the, the drafting scores, the DFS scores, the fantasy scores start lining up with the way that he's actually playing. And we've seen that over the last three weeks, he has three, he had three touchdown passes against the Browns, three touchdown passes against the Ravens, uh, four touchdown passes the week before that against Arizona. So 10 touchdown passes across his last three games. And I feel like if people look at the box scores, which is how a lot of casual players kind of do their research is looking through the box scores, those last three weeks are probably going to look a little bit fluky. Now, three touchdown passes is a lot of touchdown passes. Just because he's playing well doesn't mean he's going to come out and throw another three touchdown passes in this spot. But just to highlight, the fluky box scores were the early season box scores, not these most recent ones. So Stafford is playing well enough to keep this up. He can definitely keep this up against Washington. Uh, Josh Allen, you got Josh Allen way up here at 17%. Dak down here at 4.6%. Uh, would like to see a smaller delta between these two guys. Uh, so pretty sharp on the field for leaning to the Josh Allen side. Josh Allen, obviously a guy who can take over a game and just kind of do everything to rack up the numbers where both these teams have really good defenses. Uh, Cowboys are a little bit likely to give up big plays because they're trying to create big plays on defense. Uh, Bill's less likely to give up big plays because they're a little bit more bend, but don't break and kind of allow the underneath stuff, but make it really difficult for teams to march the whole field on them and, uh, and to score touchdowns. So, sets up better for Josh Allen than for Dak Prescott. Obviously, we know how much we love Sam Howell and his gunslinger ways, wide range of outcomes, but he can hit for those high-end scores. And then Brock Purdy, who, you know, the uh, the volume isn't there, and yet the scoring continues to be there in, in this soft matchup against Arizona, clearly could put up another 25-plus point score in this spot. Uh, and then we talked, you know, about this kind of one game that's higher than the other games on the early window. What's interesting about that early window is it's really hard even to like ask questions, impartial questions about those games and come up with an objective scenario in which those games turn into a shootout. All six of those low total games, like they're probably not turning into shootouts. And the closest that we have there then is that Packers and Bucks game. And even that one, you know, the Packers have topped 24 points only three times all year. They've allowed more than 25 points only once all year. Uh, their pass defense basically just plays off the ball, keeps everything in front of them so they don't give up a lot of big plays, so they don't give up a lot of quick scoring. Uh, and then they don't do a lot of quick scoring because that's not really their method on offense. And so they tend to mute game environments. So it could definitely be one of those 50 point combined games or 53, 54 point games, but sort of harder for it to develop into a 70 point shootout, which some of these later games absolutely could, or at least on the, in the 49ers Cardinals uh, situation, maybe it doesn't turn into a 70 point game, but it turns into uh, that type of game on the 49ers side, as in like, maybe they score 40 plus points in this spot. Uh, Rams and commanders definitely could develop into a 70 point game. And even though the Cowboys and Bills is likelier to play to its median outcome, it could develop into that type of game with these offenses. So uh, really nothing from the early games that jumps off the page in terms of stacks, in terms of chasing quarterbacks. The closest that we have there is Jordan Love. And again, he sort of slots in here 
correctly in terms of ownership percentages. So kind of like my quarterback list matches up very closely with the way that the field is seeing quarterback. Let me go down to running back. Uh, Kyron Williams, obviously a very sharp play this week. Well, we'll jump over Zeke, come back to him in a moment. Christian McCaffrey, obviously a very sharp play this week. Uh, these two guys kind of head and shoulders above the field in terms of raw projections. And they're both projecting for over 30% ownership. Uh, then we get down to, you know, these guys who are, there's a whole bucket of guys who is like, yeah, this is a solid play. And they're probably overpriced for their production. Uh, Rashad White, he's 7K. He would need 28 points to hit 4X his salary. 4X keeps you on a 200-point pace. Uh, he does have a 27.9-pointer. So, you know, we're kind of uh, cutting hairs here. But Rashad White hasn't hit for 4X his salary this week's salary a single time all year. Again, that 27.9-pointer, you could round up and say that he's hit for it once. But just to illustrate, like, it's not like you're going to get buried for not playing Rashad White. That's how we want to think about these things is, okay, on one side, what's the type of score he could get me? On the other side, if I don't play him, what's the worst case scenario? So why is Rashad White such a popular play? Because when you think when I play him, what's the worst case scenario? It's not that bad. He's typically going to get you 16, 17 plus points. Uh, but if we also flip that around and say, if I don't play him, what's the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario with Rashad White, generally speaking, is He's going to get 23. He's going to get 24. And like at his price tag, that's not going to kill you for not having had him. Tony Pollard, 6,700. He has not topped 22.3 DraftKings points a single time all season long. So worst case scenario, obviously there's that outside shot that he has, you know, this 30 point game, but his reasonable worst case scenario in this matchup or the reasonable worst case scenario of not playing him is that he goes out and puts up 22, 23, 24 points. Again, and his price tag doesn't kill you for not playing him. So we always want to kind of think about things like this first. We think, what's the worst case scenario if you don't play him? And then if you can see, oh, the worst case scenario is this guy puts up 40 points. Well, then you kind of, kind of like, if we say, what's the worst case scenario? You don't play Kyron Williams. He can put up 40. What's the worst case scenario? You don't play Christian McCaffrey. He can put up 40. He can put up 50. He put up 50 the last time these two teams played. Uh, so we kind of jump down to a different tier when we get to Rashad White, Tony Pollard, Bijan Robinson, same thing, right? What's the worst case scenario if you don't play Bijan Robinson? And he probably gets you 25, 26, other, everybody else 25, 26 points. Uh, and you don't have them, but you can still kind of make up those points in other spots. So we kind of have this whole bucket of plays. And then by, by the way, these guys are all on my list. I like these guys, but they're kind of in that second tier below Kyron Williams and Christian McCaffrey. And then they're all the most popular. So really only one guy who, eh, a couple guys, um, Derek Henry, what is the best case scenario if you play him? Realistically, it's probably not a score that buries everybody else. Realistically, he's probably not putting up 35 points. In this matchup, in this version of this Tennessee offense, at this point in his career, right? Tajay Spears still taking on a, a lot of the work away from Derrick Henry, which is necessary at this point in Derrick Henry's career. But does he really have like a 35-pointer in him? Probably not. Uh, is there a shot that Derrick Henry puts up 26, 27, 28, and these more popular guys up here all kind of end up in like the 17 to 22-point range? Yeah, so there's a little bit of edge in somebody like Derrick Henry. Uh, James Cook, a little bit less expensive heavily involved in this offense. You can play him in part of game environment bet. So he's another one down here, but, but basically generally speaking, like the guys down here don't really stand out. Now we do see that Brian Robinson is still in projections. Brian Robinson is now out for Washington. So we'll have to see where Antonio Gibson comes in. Antonio Gibson becomes very interesting. Uh, if Devon Achan is out where he most probably doesn't see his ownership jump that much. And so he becomes interesting because 
what's the best case scenario if you roster him? Well, not a great matchup, but the best case scenario if you roster Raheem Mostert is he puts up 32, 35 plus points, right? Like he's capable of doing that in this offense. So there are a few pieces down here that you can kind of say, well, okay, the field's not really going to be on them. Jerry McKinnon, another one, uh, the field's not really going to be on them. So maybe I can get some edge here, but generally speaking, top of the ownership pool at running back basically lines up with the top of my pool at running back. So quarterback and running back, we have the, the high on plays pretty sharp. Like it's not bad chalk this week. You're not seeing any spots where you're like, Ooh, this is just flawed thinking where a lot of weeks, I mean, we always say, right. Chalk is generally chalk because it's sharp, but a lot of weeks, there's still going to be those two, three pieces at these positions where you're like, okay, here's an edge. Here's an edge that 15% of the tournament field is going to be on this guy. Here's an edge that 25% of the tournament field is going to be on this guy. Cause he's just, he's just not that good of a play. So we avoid him. And we're already a little bit ahead of the field. So there's nothing really like that at the running back position. Uh, let's pause. Let's talk about Ezekiel Elliott. So Ezekiel Elliott, really interesting situation. Interesting in that I hadn't even thought about Ezekiel Elliott until I did my DFS lab show on Thursday morning with Keegan. If you don't watch the DFS lab show, the concept of that show is that I've been playing DFS for 10 years now. I have been playing it seriously for 10 years now. I've had success in DFS for 10 years now. Keegan has been playing for two or three years. He plays casually. He has a one-year-old kid, a wife, uh, not a huge bankroll. He's didn't follow the NFL until a few years ago when he started playing DFS. And so he's kind of trying to learn the ropes. He enjoys DFS. He's trying to learn it. He spends time putting together his rosters each week, but he's not doing his own independent research. He's still learning about the game theory and strategy aspects of things. And so the concept of that show is that he's a more casual player and I'm a more serious player. And so he's able to essentially be a proxy for the audience ask some of the questions the audience might be asking, uh, explore some of the angles the audience might be exploring, and then, you know, maybe bring some new thoughts to the table for me, but then also have questions answered and kind of pick up some thoughts along the way of how he should be changing his approach or how he should be approaching that particular week. Almost like a, like a coaching session on air where Keegan gets to be the audience that is, that is learning. And then the audience also gets to learn along with him. Okay. I say all that to say he brought up Zeke and I hadn't even looked at Zeke because it was like, you know, I, I just looked at er, early in the week. I'm looking at the, the setups for these games and it's just like, well, the Patriots offense is awful and they're not going to score a ton of points. Um, so I'm not really that interested in players from the Patriots offense against this great Kansas city defense. And then Keegan comes up and he says, Zeke. And so we're talking about him and I'm like, man, he's actually, he's a pretty sharp play. And, you know, he might be popular, but I, I said on the, on that show, I said, I just don't think that a lot of, I, I think that a lot of sharp players, which is who we're really competing against for first place, I think a lot of sharp players won't play Zeke. Then after that, I had my, uh, usually on Fridays, I have a show with Squirrel Patrol on Roto Grinder. Squirrel Patrol is one of the sharpest DFS players, won a Millie Maker earlier this year. He's has, I don't know, 100 live final seats that he's picked up throughout his career. He's flying to Miami this week for uh, the FanDuel live final because he's flying today on Friday. We did the show on Thursday this week. So uh, I brought up Ezekiel Elliott to him. And his reaction was the same that mine had been in that he was like, I'm, I'm having even thought about Zeke. Haven't even considered Zeke. So small sample that we're working with, that's that's two people who would be considered good at DFS who were like, 
wait, Zeke? No, I'm not, I'm not on Zeke. So it becomes very interesting here in that really going to the hood, Zeke played 52 out of 57 snaps. I mean, he's basically the full-time running back. He's getting the Ramondre role and the Zeke role. A couple of weeks ago, was it two weeks ago that, that Ramondre got hurt? Ramondre was one of my highest owned players on that week, even though he was in a split backfield. He was one of my highest owned players because when Bailey Zappi had come in at halftime the week before or, or whatever it was, end of the first half the week before, the Patriots immediately shifted their offense to be heavy on the screen game, heavy on the running back passes, basically just a lot of short area throws to make things easy on Bailey Zappi, uh, allow the Patriots to march the field without making mistakes. And then last week, Zeke comes in, plays 52 out, 52 out of 57 snaps, sees eight targets, sees basically this full Ramondre plus Zeke role with Bailey Zappi under center where they're just like, you know what, let's just throw the ball to the running backs, try to avoid as many mistakes as we can. So uh, Demario Douglas going to be back this week, it looks like. So that takes maybe a little bit of the short area throw to the running back stuff off the table. But uh, I do think that Zeke is a sharp play because uh, I'll put it like this, Zeke plus Ramondre They've averaged 20.5 DraftKings points per game. Now, obviously, Ramondre is a better player at this point in his career than Zeke is at this point in his career. So maybe they, maybe you know Zeke, if he had this full role, getting all the touches, maybe he would average 17 points a game. But a guy averaging 17 points a game, right? Or even like, let's take the 20.5. The only players on this slate averaging more than 20.5 DraftKings points per game, the only running backs on this slate averaging more than 20.5 DraftKings points per game are Christian McCaffrey and Kyron Williams. And Kyron Williams is just barely above that mark. So just to illustrate that, yeah, like the individual Patriots running backs haven't been that valuable this year. But the role, if you put it, put the two players together, has been valuable. And it becomes even more valuable with Bailey Zappi under center because they're kind of designing this offense to throw the ball to the running backs, try to avoid mistakes. Uh, that should be emphasized even further against this Kansas City defense. So I do think that Zeke is sharp chalk, A. And B, I think that the, and I could be totally wrong on this, right? We have a lot of time for thoughts to develop and people to come around on the fact that Zeke is, in fact, a sharp play. But I do think that a lot of sharper DFS players are going to look and be like, uh, Dusty, Zeke on a bad offense uh, against Kansas City. And then they're going to look at ownership numbers and be like, really? And he's popular. And they're going to think, there's no way I'm playing Zeke at high ownership on a bad offense against the Kansas City defense. Uh, and so I think that the ownership numbers are a little bit misleading because I think that the he will be higher owned among people we're not necessarily competing against for first place and lower owned among uh, among the types of DFS players who are putting together really sharp, comprehensive rosters that have shots at a first place finish, uh, which means that if Zeke goes for his 26, 27 type points, if he goes for his high end score, well, most of the people who are getting that score alongside us could end up being people who are putting together kind of suboptimal rosters around Zeke, negative EV rosters around Zeke. And the people who are putting together plus EV rosters could be the people who are fading Zeke, right? So if we're able to be sharp roster builders, build toward first place finishes and include Zeke on some of those rosters, uh, that's an angle that could provide an edge. And I'll take a moment to talk about this kind of like a more winner circle type topic. But uh, in fact, talked about this on winner circle this last week. Anytime there's any sort of tiebreaker or any sort of close comparison between a couple of players, the strategy edge 
should be what makes the decision for us. So I've used, I used the example last year, there was a week where Camara and Eckler were basically the same price. And uh, I kind of liked them equally on paper. They were pretty equal. I actually liked Eckler more, but the strategy angle was much stronger on Camara. I don't remember the situation around it, but for whatever reason, the strategy angle was much stronger on Camara. It wasn't just ownership. It was, it had something to do with leverage and it had something to do with like how other people were, other people were building that week along with ownership. And so it was like, I liked Eckler a little bit more, but Camara was a dramatically better strategy play. In other words, if we played out the slate 100 times, Eckler probably outscored Kamara more times, but the times when Kamara outscored Eckler would make you more money. Therefore, say it's 40-60, right? Well, the 40% of the time that Kamara hits would actually make you more money overall than the 60% of the time that, that Eckler would have hit. And so in a situation like that, I ended up going way overweight on Kamara, even though I liked Eckler more as the play. And on that particular week, ended up working out. Kamara had the higher score than Eckler. And so it ended up being more positive all around in terms of ROI. Uh, another good example, recent example, was this last week. I ended up going with 40%, actually two different places th this last week, week 14. I went 40% ownership on Amari Cooper. And the 49ers defense, I had, I don't even know how much because I made all the changes late, but I had probably 45 to 50% 49ers defense this last week. The 49ers defense was not a dramatically better play than other defenses, but we got the Geno Smith news, the news that Geno Smith wasn't going to start. We got that late Sunday morning, like an hour and 15 minutes before the early games kicked off. That's way too late for most people to be like, you know what? I'm going to change my thoughts on defense. So I recognized that the 49ers defense, which had scored eight or more points in four straight games against Geno Smith, the 49ers defense was going to be pretty low owned. They'd already put together eight plus points in four straight games against Geno Smith. And now they were taking on Drew Locke. And so this opportunity to recognize, you know what, this is maybe not even as good of a defense as some of the other options, like the Vikings were my favorite defense last week, ended up dramatically outscoring the 49ers. Now, a lot of my Vikings rosters, I didn't pivot to the 49ers because I didn't have the salary to on those. But all 100% of my Texans rosters last week switched to the 49ers. Uh, any of the rosters that I had, you know, Ravens, where I had, they cost 3,300, the 49ers were 3,900. So I went through all my Ravens rosters, and any of them where I had 600 in salary left over, pivoted up to the 49ers. I did that across the board where I had the salary. Basically just saying, you know what, the, the 49ers aren't a dramatically better defense special teams play than these other ones. They're maybe a little bit better than some of these other ones. They're maybe a little bit worse than the Vikings. But in terms of like, all of a sudden, you get this really good play that's super low owned, pivot onto it, right? So Amari, same thing. Everyone was on Elijah Moore last week. Everyone expected that Amari Cooper would be out with his concussion. We get the news Saturday night that Amari is going to play. And because it's late news and people like to have their thoughts in place early, I recognized that Elijah Moore was still actually going to be higher owned than Amari, that people wouldn't move off of Elijah Moore as much as they should. And then that very few people would move over to Amari. So Amari didn't end up hitting. He did end up seeing 14 targets. But the situation with Amari was, you're talking about a very thin slate. You're probably not getting a lot of 25 plus point scores from the entire slate as a whole. And you have a guy in Amari who you go back to his game logs last year with Jacoby Brissett. You go to his game logs with Deshaun Watson in games where he played well. And you see that Flacco has been playing well, supporting good pass catcher scores. I mean, David Njoka put up 27 DraftKings points last week. And you recognize like um, uh, since all of last year, Amari was one of the most underpriced players on DraftKings because he put up these 27 plus point scores way more often 
than people were realizing. And so the ownership was just never there. And so you look at a spot against the Jags where you're going to throw the ball because you can't run against the Jags and Amari's going to pile up targets and nobody's going to be on him. So Amari was a good play last week. He wasn't a good enough play that if we'd had the news all week that Amari was playing, he wasn't a good enough play that I'm going to be like, okay, 40% Amari. But because of that strategy angle where it's like, okay, there's not going to be a lot of 25 plus point scores on this slate. Amari is very capable of putting up that type of score. And because of the, the nature of this late breaking news, people just won't be on him. They won't be on him, not because he's a bad player, because of the bad matchup or because they're misreading the situation. It's just people get their thoughts in place early enough in the week that once that happens, people aren't like, I got to shift everything to go to Amari. And those are the types of spots where you want to say, I got to shift everything here, right? So uh, bringing that over to this, this Zeke situation and then what we're going to talk about next, there aren't that many clear strategy angles on this slate. A lot of people are going to recognize that the the slate is backloaded, that these high total games are all late and they're going to leave that flexibility to change their rosters late. A lot of people are going to recognize that these early games have really low totals and they're not going to dig too deeply into those early games. And then as we just looked at the ownership at quarterback, the ownership at running back isn't really giving us those opportunities of, oh, wow, here's an Amari Cooper who can put up 30 points and is only going to be 3% owned, right? We're not really finding those at the running back and quarterback position. So uh, I say that to say this Ezekiel Elliott angle might actually end up proving to be a powerful angle if things play out that way to where the A, he puts a, a nice score, uh, but then obviously B, more importantly, how much do you win when this guy does well? Well, B, more importantly, we could see that when he puts up the big score, he's primarily on negative EV rosters built around him and not on the plus EV rosters that are out there. And so uh, that could be like a really interesting uh, little pinball move to move up the leaderboards is just having Zeke on, on sharply built roster. So uh, who knows if things will play out that way, but that's one of the angles I'm looking at on this particular week. Uh, then we get down to wide receiver. And this is the other place where there's edge where you have really fragile chalk at the top. Now, again, these are Friday ownership numbers. There's room for these numbers to develop and change. But uh, right now we have Wondell Robinson as the highest projected owned wide receiver because he, uh, he caught a pass on the last drive from the Giants that like made his final stat line look good. We've got Garrett Wilson, who, again, Garrett Wilson had a good game last week. He was central to my pool last week. One of the things, things I talked about last week was like, and Garrett Wilson, his best career game with Zach Wilson heading into last week, his best career game was 20.6 DraftKings points. And that's not that great. You know, it's not winning you a tournament. It's not burying people for not having had him. Uh, but the slate was so thin that it was like, you know what, though? Like, he gets so many targets. He's capable of scoring more than 20 points, even, even though Zach Wilson hasn't done that for him yet. Uh, so let me make Garrett Wilson part of my player pool. He went out and put up whatever, whatever it was, 23 DraftKings points. And now he's projecting for 24% ownership in a decently tough matchup against this Miami defense. Uh, Rasheed Rice against the good Patriots defense coming in with 18.4% projected ownership. Demarcus Robinson, who is now the number three for the Rams, but you know, he scored a touchdown two weeks ago. He saw 10 targets last week. Like that's not indicative of what's going to continue happening moving forward. If you have Kyron Williams, Puka Nakua, Cooper Cup, you're not designing plays for Demarcus Robinson. Also, Tyler Higby was out last week. He's on track to return this week. So uh, I would expect Demarcus Robinson to land in the three to five target range. He might end up seeing six targets, but basically putting up kind of the type of stat lines that we've seen from Tutu Atwell throughout the season. So uh, I don't think that those 
the 10 targets is like when Justin Watson saw 11 and everybody piled on Justin Watson the next week. And he ended up, I think, put up like one or two DraftKings points that week. So I don't expect that big of a fall off for Demarcus Robinson. There's that outlier scenario in which he sees another big target game here. But uh, realistically, you know, we play out the rest of the season, you're going to see Demarcus Robinson landing in kind of this three to six target range. So another piece where it's like, boy, this is a really high ownership for a pretty fragile piece. Uh, Jaden Reed, good play on paper. Demario Douglas, uh, interesting because of the targets that'll be there when he comes back on the field. I don't understand the juju projected ownership. Terry McLaurin, uh, you know, in this in this game against the Rams, but, you know, doesn't really stand out from the other wide receivers on this offense. So this is really the spot where we can kind of find places to maneuver around the field where there's really high ownership on plays. They're not bad plays on paper. And it's not like the plays we're going to go to are dramatically better plays on paper. Running back is or wide receiver is pretty thin this week, but we see the field expressing too much confidence on fragile chalk. And so this is going to be one of our clearest pathways to first place on this week is just saying, okay, this is where the field is going at wide receiver. Where can I go instead? Uh, Thinking of leverage, right? Uh, like I said, I like Jaden Reed, but we also see that Romeo Dobbs and here's Romeo Dobbs at 2.3%. Dontavion Wicks is all the way down at uh, Dontavion Wicks is oh, up here at 5.1%. So a little bit higher than Romeo Dobbs. Uh, we also see go down to wide receiver. Um, we also saw Terry McLaurin up here, but Curtis Samuel down here at 4.7%. Jahan Dotson down at 3.3%. 3. 3. Uh, we also have Logan Thomas at 4.7%. So again, looking for places where we can find that uh, that strategy edge and say, okay, well, maybe not only do these guys hit, but they also take away points from a more popular piece. So those are one of the angles that we can be thinking about this week. Uh, and then we've got Puka Nakua at 14.7%, Cooper Cup at 9.3%, not as high as you would expect in these spots. And then you got Brandon Hayek at only 9.4% and Debo Samuel sitting down here at, I might've passed over him already, but he was down, I think like the 5% range. So uh, again, there's Debo Samuel, 4.2%. Uh, so you have kind of these places where, we can find really good plays that are coming in low owned because of the salary structure that people are going to. People are jumping onto Christian McCaffrey, so then they're not having the salary to go to Debo or Brandon Ayuk. Again, Christian McCaffrey scored 51.7 the last time the 49ers played the Cardinals, so it's like, oh man, how can I not play Christian McCaffrey? But realistically, his likeliest output is 22 to 30 points, right? So if he ends up kind of in that 22-point range, well, you end up in really good shape if you end up on the correct 49ers piece that, that jumps over him. People are spending a lot of salary on McCaffrey, not able to play this other 49ers piece. So um, yeah, just a lot of interesting things that we can be doing at wide receiver, building better rosters than other people are building and, and finding leverage off of the more fragile chalk. So that's one of the interesting structure components of this slate is the not just the division of the uh, early slate and the late slate, the the high totals and the low totals, or the low totals and the high totals, uh, but also uh, this situation where quarterback really kind of looks pretty sharp, running back looks pretty sharp in terms of the way the field is playing it, but wide receiver kind of looks like the field is expressing too much confidence in pretty fragile pieces. And so even though we might have to go to other fragile pieces, we want to go to the lower, lower owned fragile pieces. Uh, so some build angles that I'm seeing for this week, 
Uh, one is to include one to two Rams pieces on every roster. Another is to include one to two 49ers piece on every roster. Uh, another piece, as we talked about, is to get different at wide receiver. And then finally, to leave some late slate flexibility. Those are kind of my four key things that I'm looking at this week for my rosters. Okay, so now that we've looked at the puzzle on the box, I've given you, again, uh, I would take all of this as like, I'll say it like this. There's going to be weeks where Tank Dell's 3,200 or 3,600, and I'm expressing a high level of confidence in him. And because of that, you say, man, I'm going to play Tank Dell as well, and it ends up working out really well. It's going to be weeks where I'm high on Desmond Ritter and Drake London, and everyone else is like, really Desmond Ritter and Drake London? And that ends up being the way to win the Millie Maker on that particular week. And because I express some confidence in them, you follow along and you end up doing really well. There's also going to be weeks like last week where I went in depth on why I wasn't playing Drake London and why people were overrating his chances of hitting for a big game. And he goes out and basically is the had to have a piece because he was 4,600 and scored 32 or whatever it was, DraftKings points. Uh, So when I talk about this stuff, process it all on your end as my thoughts, right? And use that as something that you can build your own thoughts off of or counterbalance against your own thoughts. Um, But I would encourage you to always be thinking for yourself, always be developing your own thoughts, strategies, angles, and just using my thoughts as like an illumination point of how you might be able to maneuver to that first place finish. There's going to be weeks where you fade my thoughts and my thoughts are correct. And you're going to be like, man, I should have listened to JM and I could have gotten this big win. There's going to be other weeks though, where you fade my thoughts and that ends up being the right way to go. And you win because you trusted yourself. So over time, you want to be building your own thoughts. There's going to be times where my thoughts align with yours. There's going to be times where I present a thought to you that you want to pull in and think about, and then maybe you'll end up rejecting that thought, or maybe you will end up pulling it into your thoughts. So uh, again, I gave you very kind of specific angles on how I'm seeing the slate. So I wouldn't just take that and say, okay, here's how I'm going to build, but take that and say, okay, here's something I can counterbalance off my own thoughts and and maybe consider some of these things I hadn't considered before. Pull them in, see if I want to keep those thoughts or reject them. Uh, Okay, last thing we do here is the bottom-up build. The bottom-up build started, I don't know, four or five years ago. Uh, The idea was that a lot of people start their rosters at the top. They figure out the high-priced players they want to play, and then they end up putting in bad value plays just to fit in those plays. So we started starting from, we began to start our rosters from the bottom, do a bottom up build. And what we would do is basically go from the bottom and then stop at the first player who felt like we could have like a high level of confidence in. So it's not just sometimes the, our second cheapest running back was like 6,500 because we were just, we weren't like, just embracing, hey, this guy's cheap. He has a role. We'll play him on this roster. Um, so it became an exercise to find kind of the best value plays. Over time, it developed into something where we set a, a 44K salary cap and tried to build under that 44K salary cap. We launched the bottom up build contest, which you can find linked in my player grid in the scroll or in the bottom up build channel in Discord. The rules for that contest, build with a 44K salary cap, uh, a lot of cool prizes to the top five finishers. And then uh, this turned into a 44k salary cap um, discussion, right? And what we what we started seeing with the bottom up build contest is people scoring 180, 190, 200 plus points, spending 44k in salary, uh, and they would find very unique ways to get some like high variance but high upside cheap pieces and mix those in with high priced pieces that other people weren't able to access. So you get those 30 point scores from the high priced pieces, uh, you get the 20, 25 pointer from the 
high variance, cheap piece, and now you're so far ahead of everybody else. So uh, that's what the bottom up build has kind of turned into is an opportunity to for me to kind of talk through a few more players, talk through some angles, uh, hit on some of the value plays, but also talk about how we might be able to maximize our ceiling uh, on a 44K salary cap roster, but then also obviously carrying that over to the full slate. So I was not able to find a sharp way to build a bottom up build roster with a piece from the Rams and a piece from the 49ers definitely attempted that. Uh, and you might want to attempt that as well, but uh, ended up going with, I'll, I'll actually run through this somewhat quickly because we kind of dove in, in depth into some of these plays uh, Sam Howell at quarterback uh, stacked him originally with uh, Antonio Gibson, but ended up shifting over to Logan Thomas uh, would actually prefer to have him double stacked, but I wanted to talk about some extra players on this roster. Actually I have Logan Thomas in the flex because I also wanted to get Darren Waller on this roster. I'll talk about Darren Waller a little bit more in the player grid, obviously, but Darren Waller, a piece that should be coming back this week. And again, we won't get that news until Saturday. So people just won't pivot to him quite enough. He's only 4,400. We know he's very central to that Giants offense. If in fact, people stick with the Wondell Robinson chalk and don't pivot over to Darren Waller. He also functions as really nice leverage off of a popular piece. So I want to get Darren Waller on here. And then Logan Thomas ended up working out uh, in terms of the salary on this roster. So uh, we go Sam Howell, we go Logan Thomas, we have Kyron Williams as our bring back on the Rams side, uh, betting on Kyron Williams in this scenario, getting the, the catches and the touchdowns and putting up 35 to 40 points, uh, leaving Cup and Nakua kind of below 22 points, uh, leaving Demarcus Robinson, you know, below six or seven points. And so uh, we have Logan Thomas at the same price point as Demarcus Robinson. So ideally, Logan Thomas outscores Demarcus Robinson as well. Uh, so starting point of Sam Howell, Logan Thomas, Darren Waller, Kyron Williams. We also have Ezekiel Elliott on this roster and Demario Douglas, kind of an interesting two-player pairing, but basically saying uh, that that is going to be primarily the offense for the Patriots. It's going to be a lot of short area passes. Uh, these two guys don't cost that much in combined salary. What do they cost? They cost 9.7K. Is that right? Uh, so almost like you're paying for Tyree Kill, almost like you're paying for Christian McCaffrey. Uh, you would be hoping then for 25 to 40 points from these two guys. And very much so, these two guys can combine for that type of score. So Ezekiel Elliott and Demario Douglas on this roster. Uh, Rashid Shaheed, who uh, another guy who has been out. Uh, we're still waiting on official news that he's going to play, and it's Friday afternoon. So people have kind of started getting their thoughts into place. Uh Chris Olave did not practice on Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. He has now been called a game time decision. And Rashid Shahid looks like he will play this week. So uh, one of those plays where in terms of the ceiling, it's so high and the ownership probably just won't get there. Even if he creeps up to 10%, 12% owned, really, if what if Chris Olave is out, right? Rashid Shahid should probably be 18% owned, 22% owned, he's not going to end up getting there. So uh, it's just too late in the week for that much steam to develop on a player. So Rashid Shahid becomes a very interesting play here. Uh, and then the Giants defense, interesting because we got Giants defense uh, and Rashid Shahid, but we're trying to save some salary here. Uh, and then we put Noah Brown on this roster, primarily because I wanted to talk about this situation. So you look at uh, average separation at target and by far, the leaders each year are going to be these Shanahan offenses. So right now, it's it's the Dolphins with Mike McDaniel. It's the Texans with Bobby Slowick. It's the 49ers with Kyle Shanahan. 
But these offenses are great at designing concepts that get, get guys open in space, oftentimes with blockers around them. So they can basically, like, especially Shanahan, everything that he does is a run play. It's just that a lot of times you're throwing the ball eight yards, 10 yards downfield to have this run play. I shouldn't say everything he does, but 70, 80% of what he does is a run play. You're throwing the ball downfield, but still with run concepts of like, how do we have space around this guy, some blockers around this guy, so that this guy can turn this catch into a big run. It's not just about how do we get a pass completed down the field. It's how do we get a pass completed down the field that gains yards after the guy catches the ball. And uh, obviously the 49ers have drafted and developed players that also fit this mold. But uh, this offense, everyone's kind of, everyone's been attacking the Tennessee defense all year in DFS. They're currently number four in DVOA against the run, number 29 against the pass. Uh, and all year we've been attacking with this Texans offense. Now, obviously, CJ Stroud has been playing at an MVP level. But still, this is a really soft matchup. And we're talking about an offense that does a great job getting guys open in space and getting the ball into their hands. Davis Mills is not a great NFL quarterback. He's not going to make the tight window throws and, and the anticipation reads and the downfield back shoulder stuff. But I bet he can get the ball in the hands of a guy who's open in space or at least do it enough that on a really thin slate, a guy like Noah Brown has potential to be a difference maker. So uh, I think Noah Brown is very interesting on this slate. want to highlight that in terms of like, we don't want to be thinking about where we could get good scores. We want to be thinking about where we could get separator scores, right? If Amari Cooper's ceiling last week, if his best possible game was going to be like 18 to 20 points, there would have been no reason for me to be like, you know what, I'm going to go way overweight on him. I'm going to go 20% on him because we've seen Rasheed Rice constantly get up in like the 17, 16 to 20 point range. We see Garrett Wilson constantly get into the 14 to 20 point range. They were priced right around Amari Cooper. So if Amari Cooper's range was the same thing, like what's the real edge? The edge with Amari was that he could score 27. He could score 32 and blow past those guys. So uh, Noah Brown, what's cool about the Noah Brown situation is it's not like we're just saying, man, hopefully this guy who's kind of high risk because Davis Mills is the quarterback. We've got this uncertainty and, and Noah Brown was a, proved to be a really great number two in this offense, but he could be the number one this week with Nico Collins out. And, and so they're putting extra attention on him. And can he really get open and do all this, right? There's a lot of question marks here. If we were taking on all those question marks for a guy who were like, Ooh, maybe he gets me 15 to 20 points. Well, that that's pointless. That doesn't help us. But we're talking about a guy who has a, what was it? A 30 pointer and a 37 pointer already this year from a lot of those from catching the ball and making big plays after the catch. So uh, very interesting play this week. Wanted to add him to the bottom up build so we could talk about him. Uh, total salary spent 43.6K. That leaves us with 6,400 in remaining salary. Uh, if you wanted to use this as there was actually a couple weeks ago, it was three weeks ago uh, that uh, we had a user finish second in the Millie maker. And it was basically the bottom up build with I think one or two players changed. Uh, and on that particular week, after I built the bottom up build, my thought was, man, I wish I could put this into tournaments. I should just change one player and put it into tournaments. Uh, so if you want to use this as kind of like a starting point and mix and match some salary, even just as a thought exercise, that can be valuable. Build your own bottom-up build, put it in the bottom-up build contest. Uh, use your bottom-up build as a starting point for your own rosters. Uh, some cool things that you can do with that in terms of becoming a better DFS player, giving yourself a shot at those first place finishes. With that, we're going to call it a wrap. Thanks as always for hanging out. I will see you today's Friday. So if you're listening to this on Friday, we do have a scroll for the Saturday slate. Uh, as always, all the games are broken down in the NFL edge. Off scroll for the main slate. So as always, I will see you 
on OWS throughout the weekend. And I will see you at the top of the leaderboards on Sunday. Sunday.